Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I had the pleasure to talk with Kevin Coker. Kevin is the founder and CEO of Proxima Clinical Research, and he and I dive into this, I think, pretty exciting topic on clinical evaluation and validity of software as a med device. And, you know, Kevin shares a lot of really good tips that you should know as software as a med device with respect to that particular topic. You know, how, does your product work? Does it meet the needs of the end user? What about the expectations for post-market clinical surveillance and and real-world evidence? We cover a lot of those things, so enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. I'm really excited today because you know we get another guest from Proxima Clinical Research. Uh, this guest is not Isabella. Yeah, I know you've heard her a few times. This is the the A team, Kevin Coker. So, Evan, uh, Kevin, I know you're going to laugh about that, but welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. I wore my Mr. T starter kit. Uh, nice. Honor of that. No, you de- you definitely have the B team, Isabella. Is uh, you, you guys have had a nice rapport and yeah, uh, ha- happy to uh, be in her stead. She's dealing with lots of opportunities that have come into the the shop with what's happening with COVID, and so we're we got all hands on deck. So you got me today, but it's wow. be. It's thrilled to have you, and and glad we're still able to do this. I know it is uh, an interesting time for for everyone in the world, and. You know your business and in my business and our respective customer bases too. I know uh, many of them are trying to do some exciting things to to be part of the solution. So folks, stay tuned. Hopefully, we have some some news to share very soon about some of the things that uh, you all are doing, and uh, would like to share some of that good news because I think this is a definitely a time in the world where reminding uh, everyone that there's lots of great things happening, uh, especially in in the med tech and pharmaceutical and, and biotech spaces uh, that uh, sometimes we forget about. So we'll, we'll try to bring some of those stories to you very soon. But let's dive into a conversation today. I know we've talked on the Global Medical Device Podcast about you know th- regulatory things uh, a lot, quality systems, of course. Um, but we get into the details on, on some of these topics. And software as a med device is, is certainly, at least for me, a pretty interesting uh, uh, I guess, uh, silo to, to go super deep in sometimes. And we've had a few recent episodes on different aspects of that. But I thought today that we might do a little bit of a different twist. And the twist for today is uh, about clinical evaluation and validity of software as a med device. So what do you think, Kevin? Uh, I'll give it a shot. Sounds good. Uh, all right. So always a good place to kind of calibrate the audience, uh, Maybe talk for a few moments, what is software as a med device, and maybe what is not a software as a med device. Those might be a good places, or a couple of good places to dive into. Yeah, thanks, thanks John. So you know, things have certainly changed just from uh, in the trenches perspective, not necessarily from a regulatory perspective, but just the way um, software has evolved uh, so quickly over the past few years. And it's hard to tell now, but 
you know, at a basic level, you know, software that's intended to be used for a medical purpose that's not part of the hardware of the medical device. That's essentially what we call software as a medical device. And that without being part of, that is left to a lot of interpretation. And that's what you usually have to start to research and find out because it's fairly easy to see something like an embedded medical device or a pacemaker that's got a piece of firmware that's not going to be updated and that's going to just continuously run. It's a closed loop, as you engineers would say. That's not necessarily what we're talking about today. What we're talking about software as a medical device is those things that are uh, that software that's usually um, working outside of a hardware system or it's running on like a, a general purpose uh, computer. It, it could be used as part of a, you know, a hardware device, but it's usually like as a module or something that's connected and it's constantly updating. So that's left up to a lot of interpretation. You have to sort of go down and understand what that is. Things that are, are not software as a medical device, easy things like if it's something that is controlling the scheduling of a patient visit, even if it's integrated into uh, electronic medical record or even connected in some way to certain devices, those are things that are not considered software as a medical device. But you always have to sort of go through that analysis about the uh, without being part of, that's the important part. All right, that's a, a good explanation. And and I may ask you here in a little bit as we get into like clinical evaluation and validity, you know, if if that difference is is all that important when we talk about software, but we'll we'll save that for later. But probably an, another area to dive into a little bit is you know, again, some some areas of confusion and and I know this this particular area does have some Certainly, some impact on you know the clinical uh, evaluation validity side, but you know talk a little bit about the categories of, of classification. I mean, what are they? What do they mean? And and certainly, if you have any examples for for any of the different categories, I think that might help cement some of the the concepts around this with uh, folks listening. Yeah. So this guidance that most people refer to is part of the IMDRF, otherwise known as the International Medical Device Regulators Forum, and the FDA and and other regulatory bodies are are part of that. And they came up with a uh, classification scheme to evaluate the ICE itself, the level of, of endpoints that are being monitored or captured, and ultimately, what is that device having to do? Is it driving things like serious events or driving critical functions within for the patient, or is it just informing more non-serious things? And so the regulatory group came together and put together these categories, essentially uh, four categories. And if you, know, you want to see a nice table uh, that describes this a lot better, than what I can vocalize here on the call, you know, go to that IMDRF guideline and you can see the table and it outlines um, uh, very clearly class one or category one, I should say, those are things 
the software that's informing non-serious types of activities. Category two are things that are informing sort of critical activities. And so those are things, again, less likely, maybe more like the Apple Watch, monitoring the activity of, of the ECG wave, but not to necessarily drive a particular diagnosis or a therapy, but just reporting on whether there's some type of blip or arrhythmia. I definitely don't want to get into sort of Apple Watch versus the, uh, uh, the, you know, the other medical devices on the market, but those are the types of the smaller categories. And ultimately, what these categories are for is to find out whether you're going to need some type of independent review of the evidence that you're submitting to the FDA. Uh, because the FDA, um, they want to see, you know, a well thought out plan of how you're going to gather that evidence and how you're going to assess it and how that evidence will be presented. And if you're in one of the higher categories, like category three and category four, those are things that are driving critical decisions or treating or diagnosing very serious things, such as a software device that might be interpreting images or lab results for um, an oncology patient, or maybe being used in uh, the intensive care setting to alert or drive some type of physician behavior. Those things are higher categories, and as the data, as the intended use of the device uh, come together and you find out that you're in a higher category, the FDA and other regulatory agencies may require your data package and your clinical evidence standard to have an independent review. And then you'll work with uh, the regulatory agency to determine what that independent review consists of, whether it's um, somebody that you could use your experts for or the FDA might recommend some experts or, or groups to work with, or they might have you work with a peer journal or something like that, somebody that could assess that, uh, that evidence, somebody that's not conflicted uh, from that standpoint. All right, let me unpack a couple of things and before we dive into some of the finer points of uh, clinical evaluation. So first, folks, uh, Kevin mentioned the INDRF, SAMD guidance document. If you're consuming this on the Proxima blog or the Greenlight blog, we'll have a link to that guidance document. But if you type in to any search engine, IMDRF, SAMD, uh, top link or two should take you right to that. But it's a pretty good guidance document. And, and there is, as Kevin alluded to, there is this table that talks about the different categories and what those mean. And there's some definitions to that. And, you know, of course, with anything like this, there, there are shades of gray, infinite shades of gray. So, but do consult this guidance. It is um, widely regarded and I, I believe accepted by pretty much every regulatory bar, body across the world. And I, I think this is really important if you are maybe not new to software, but new to software as a med device, uh, this is one of those uh, definite guidance documents to, to keep reference to and, and confirm from time to time because you know this is this is how regulators are looking at it uh, the r and imdrf stands for regulators uh, and as kevin mentioned fda and amongst uh, many others our regulatory bodies are involved in this the other thing that i want to highlight here is you know these categories of classification i want to clarify that that this does not necessarily 
may or may not relate to the regulatory classification of your product. Um, so keep that in mind. You know, FDA, EU, Canada, et cetera, et cetera. They all have their their classification systems, and that's a sort of tangential, if you will, to uh, software categories. So keep that in mind as well. Um, and speaking of that, Kevin, I, I know you know we, we got news recently that EUMDR has been tabled for for another year. But I know that was one of those areas that was a big change for especially software companies that that, that really the classification rules changed in a big way uh, in the EU. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, I'm not an expert in EUMDR. Uh, you know, that's that's Isabella's what she's usually on for. I do know that it made some some changes with regards to uh, the amount of evidence that you have to collect for these different categories. And it did change the status of what products may be considered medical devices. Certain things were not under the MDD. Now with the MDR, things like disinfection substances, devices incorporating tissue, things like that, those uh, have changed. Um, So uh, you do have to look at the new uh, MDR regulations, take yeah. a, a, a deep look at that, and then start to plan ahead, whether it's, you know, they're going to keep kicking the can down the road at some point, it is going to hit. Yeah, I mean, and I know um, speaking with quite a few software as med device companies, um, do folks, if this this is you and Europe is a market you're interested in, those new MDR requirements might have a, a pretty significant impact on product classification, which, you know, long story short, dictates your path to market in the EU. So definitely something to be aware of. Also want to take a, a brief moment to remind you all, I'm t- talking to Kevin Coger. Kevin is the uh, founder and CEO of Proxima Clinical Research. You can learn a whole bunch more by going to ProximaCRO.com, and that's P-R-O-X-I-M-A-C-R-O.com. Proxima partners with emerging companies to provide regulatory consulting and clinical research solutions. So definitely a team you want in your corner for regulatory and clinical strategies. This is this is what they do all day, every day. But Kevin, let's talk a little bit about uh, clinical evaluation. You know, what is it? What's involved? Uh, what are all the components that are important to consider as part of clinical evaluation? This this is something we get a lot of questions on, and we work closely with our uh, clients on. And you know, there's essentially three components of clinical evaluation. You think about okay, uh, these are the things that are going to have to be done for uh, my software system to ultimately um, uh, have it blessed by any regulatory agency. And the three components of that are um, a valid uh, clinical association. Is there an association between your software and what the targeted clinical condition is? I think the scientists call that the scientific validity of your test. The second component is the analytical validation. Does your software correctly process the data to generate the output? Does it do it the same way every single time? Given a set of inputs, do you always get the same output? Um, And then the third component to that is the clinical validation step. Um, Does your software accurately and reliably achieve the intended purpose for the target population. So is it, is it working effectively clinically? 
And there's, that's actually, you know, where the independent review starts to come in because you, you may require a review of those clinical endpoints and whether your device is actually measuring those clinical endpoints effectively. So that's where that uh, risk strategy comes in. And thanks for pointing out to reiterate, it does have nothing to do really with how your device is classified, whether it's a class one, two, or three under the uh, U.S. standards or other standards. It's reclassification of of what the software actually is under that one through four category. So those are the three components of it at a high level. And the clinical validation is a piece that we often have to work really closely with, with clients on. One of the, the early pieces of, of this, going back to the uh, clinical association piece, is, okay, I get that, you know, I have to have a clinical association between my software, but, you know, how do I, how do I understand what that is? How do I go out and get that data? Well, it's pretty simple at that stage. You know, really what you're talking about is just performing literature searches and gaining information on clinical research, maybe getting society guidelines, like if it's an oncology product. Um, you're just doing the general research at that, uh, that scientific validity. So you want to be able to compare the output of what your device is saying and compare it to what those guidelines are. So that's actually relatively, relatively simple. And there's ways you can, you can generate that data. On the analytical validation side of things, this is where you know, we get a lot of questions like, how do, I, how do I generate that evidence? And you can generate this evidence really during the verification and, and validation activities that you're doing, like with your quality management system, or as part of the uh, good software engineering practices that you're performing. So as you go through those steps of implementing your QMS system and using your quality management system, you can generate that analytical validation throughout that process. And then ultimately, the clinical validation, that's the bigger part that um, we can talk about uh, more in length. But that's, a, that's something that you're going to have to have evidence both at a pre-market level and at a, at a post-market level. And we can talk a little bit more about um, those data sets and how you can, uh, uh, you, you can collect that data. But I'll, I'll pause there for just a bit. I'd like to take a moment to extend a personal invitation for everyone listening to attend the Greenlight Guru True Quality virtual summit. This three-day, three-track online event is completely free and will take place on June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. And believe me, folks, this is a must-attend experience for all medical device quality, regulatory, and product development professionals. Reserve your spot now by visiting virtual-summit.greenlight.guru. We'll also include this link in the episode description. During the Greenlight Guru True Quality Virtual Summit, we'll stream directly to your desktop from the comfort of your own home with over 30 of the industry's top experts presenting a unique, personalized experience for attendees to learn actionable tips, trends, and best practices for streamlining development of innovative devices, staying ahead of regulatory changes, 
and achieving true quality for your medical devices and businesses. So before we resume this episode, head on over to virtual-summit.greenlight.guru to reserve your free all-access pass now. Yeah, you probably picked up that as a design control nerd, uh, you said uh, two of my favorite V words, uh, and I started to salivate a little bit, verification and validation. <laughs> you know, folks, I, I think this is really key that this, the, the, everything that Kevin was just talking about, it, it, it dovetails into your design history file, into all those design control activities. So that valid clinical association is tightly linked to your user needs, you know, what you claim that your thing is going to do and, and all those sorts of things. And, and as he so well put, the analytical validation really uh, comes into play during your design verification and design validation activities. And then you know, the clinical validation piece starts to get into more the design validation. Does this product address the needs of the end user? Does it perform correctly, all these sorts of things. And, and we'll unpack a little bit of that uh, here in a moment. But it sounds like a good time to tell you a little bit about Greenlight Guru. So Greenlight Guru, we built the only medical device quality management system in the world. It's been designed by medical device professionals exclusively and only for the medical device industry. So I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. We have specific workflows to help you manage your software as a medical device product development efforts and any other types of medical device product development efforts as well. Uh, Purpose-built workflows to help you navigate your user needs, inputs, outputs, VMV, all your design reviews, your entire design history file is a click of a button away. So check that out. Again, go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. Kevin, clinical evaluation is also one of those things that it's not new in EUMDR. It's been sort of uh, in vogue now for a bit. But you know, I remember when some of that came out uh, a few years back that that created some consternation uh, within the industry. And I think it's confusing because I think sometimes when people hear clinical evaluation, they, they automatically assume clinical trial. And, and that may or may not be the case, right? Exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's not always um, having to get a, a prospective randomized clinical trial. Sometimes it's uh, just gathering existing data from studies that maybe you or another group has done or, you know, with the same intended use, or it could be existing data uh, from a very similar situation with a, a different intended use. But the analysis of that data could be justified. And as far as like getting that evidence, what are some, I mean, do you have tips and pointers on how one might be able to generate that evidence? And, and I guess what happens if you can't or you can't find evidence to support your case from a clinical evaluation standpoint? Yeah, I, you know, I'll tell you, um, I'll answer your question, but I'll, I'll maybe throw out the question that we get most often. One of those is, I have a data set that I use to validate my algorithm. And can we use that data set to also do the clinical evaluation piece? So they, they perform the analytical validation with the data set. Can I use the same data to do the clinical validation? Technically, you can. But as I said, the FDA, they really want you to have a clinical plan with your endpoints and your statistical analysis 
all to be premeditated. And so you're going to likely have a discussion with the FDA about this early on. And so, you know, we try to tell folks that you'll handle this during your pre-sub meeting. And what you want to do is to be able to justify the use of that data set um, uh, for maybe the clinical validation piece. Maybe it's a, it's a rare indication and you only have access to a certain number of, of cases. This is the case sometimes with in vitro diagnostics. We're actually working with a company that works in a very rare space, and there's only so many cases in the world, and doing this prospectively, it will take them 17 years to actually capture all of that data. So that's actually a, a good example of working with the regulatory agency and justifying existing data, existing trials from that standpoint. So on the flip side of that, you can also sometimes work with the regulatory agency and say, hey, we want a limited data set as part of our uh, clinical validation. But what we will do is we will monitor this on a post-approval basis or post-market basis, and we'll provide the data to you all as the software and the device is being used. And so that is a way to sort of limit the amount of prospective clinical data that you have to capture. And one of the tricks too, um, what's well not really a trick, but is that you can also, as part of this data, you're, you're not always talking about the clinical endpoints. You could also be talking about complaints from users or safety data or other things that you capture as part of your quality management system. And so all of that data can ultimately inform uh, the clinical validation uh, back to the regulatory agency. Yeah, that's good. A moment ago, you said something about an independent reviewer. So maybe elaborate a little bit on what the importance of the independent review phase or, or component is and, and when and how often is something like this necessary? Yeah, so I'll give you maybe a bit of an extreme example that we've had working with. So we have a piece of, of so there's a company that has a piece of software and that software is um, uh, doing brain imaging and the brain imaging is being done within the hospital suite, but it can take that image data and push it out to a cell phone so that the imaging can be analyzed by a physician and the physician can communicate with, literally within seconds, if not real time, of how to manage that patient. So if they're not in the room to manage that patient, this is a, like an ischemic stroke uh, yeah. type of situation. that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the chance of mismanaging that patient with bad data is high. So that's what we call like a category four situation. And it's driving very critical decisions. And so the part of the data package and the way the software works as it's being submitted up to the regulatory agency, they want to have folks outside that are not conflicted with the company take a look at the data and ultimately look at how the software works and is it safe and is it effective. You know, it's not that they don't trust the company, but you really, in that type of situation, you have to go to an outside person. So that company worked with the FDA to agree on who the 
experts were in the space they both trusted. Uh, they appointed that independent reviewer, and now that's part of the ongoing uh, approval process um, for, for that particular company. No, it makes sense. And you know, even if if you have a software that's maybe not quite a category four, maybe one of the the category one, two, or three, the concept of an independent reviewer is is really important during design and development anyway. I want to encourage folks that you know having some objectivity uh, during that design development process is really key, and it's the, the the value that it brings is you know somebody who can come in from from with a fresh set of eyes, so to speak, and really evaluate and somewhat scrutinize things that have been done and 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 ask those those critical questions because as Kevin mentioned, especially with that example, sometimes the products we're developing. Pretty important, uh, I would say, almost always important that they do what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it and give accurate, meaningful, actionable information to caregivers. So um, I, I would encourage you all to to really embrace this idea uh, that an independent reviewer adds value to your product development efforts, regardless of category. All right. So, you know, talked a little bit about uh, the clinical evaluation and ways to generate evidence and that sort of thing. You know, there's this other thing that I think is certainly related to that, that has come up in recent years. I I know FDA has some guidances on this, but real world evidence. I know that 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 topic all by itself could be a whole separate podcast or maybe even a series of podcasts, but um, talk a little bit about how real world evidence plays into software as a med device and its uh, continued validity in the market. Yeah, you know, my first experience with real-world evidence came when I was working with oncology drugs uh, at a company called U.S. Oncology. And at that time, the FDA was asking for uh, essentially any drug that was being approved uh, for um, some type of of post-marketing study or post-marketing activity being done uh, to continually monitor the uh, impact of, um, of that. And, you know, I, I, one thing I just saw right before we jumped on uh, the call here, John, I don't know if you saw it, but they just pulled Zantac from the market because they think it's a, a suspected carcinogen is in Zantac. And so that's a perfect example, although I, I haven't looked uh, much more than just the, <laughs> the headline, so I may have the, the facts wrong with that. But it's uh, an example of how you have to collect a broader data set to really understand the impact on society. And the, the same applies for medical devices. You know, in a randomized controlled clinical trial, you, can, you may not encounter all of the various different conditions and comorbidities and real-world situations that your device is going to, going to be challenged with. And so, and as well as getting the user feedback and the complaints and the adverse events and all of that being taken in as a whole. So you do a, a trial with 300 patients, again, depending on your device and the area, you might end up with a handful of adverse events that don't amount to anything, but in a given population, those adverse events might start to add up. And so it's really important to have a post-market plan built into your clinical validation piece. And again, it's also a strategy uh, with the FDA. 
to show that you're going to continually collect the data, analyze it, appraise it in such a way, and provide that feedback back to the FDA, it can at times lower your burden uh, for clinical validation early on, again, depending on what your, what your category is and, and what your evidence standards are. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's really the sort of if there's a theme, a consistent theme specifically in the area of like quality management systems and expectations for all medical device companies, uh, including software as a med device, it is that post market surveillance. And it's really, I mean, what, what you described is really about being proactive. Uh, don't wait for, for the oh shit moment, don't wait for the complaints to come come in you know, stay ahead of this because, you know, you, you don't want your product to be pulled from the market because the real world evidence suggests that it should. You should be proactive, go get this information so that, you know, if you get something, you can properly investigate and evaluate. And, and if you need to make changes to your software as a med device or other medical devices, then then uh, being proactive about it is certainly a really good approach. And, you know, there's a lot of emphasis, folks, a ton. Um, this is one of the, the big sticking points of EU MDR. But don't, you know, even though that might have been pushed off a year, don't wait for that to, to be more proactive on your own quality management system efforts. Uh, realize that the post-market surveillance is, is actually good business. So I would highly encourage you to uh, explore and make sure that your, your processes and systems that you have in place for that are robust and giving you actionable, meaningful information before uh, problems arise. So, all right, Kevin, so we covered a lot about clinical evaluation validity of of software as a med device. Uh, I guess before we officially wrap uh, this podcast episode up, any final thoughts that you want to leave the audience with today? Well, I would say don't get overwhelmed first. And if you are sitting there as a, you know, small company or emerging company, you're trying to figure out how you generate evidence and you're finding it impossible. Certainly reach out to experts that have done this before. There's other ways to get at this evidence. Like I said, you know, you can certainly build evidence uh, from an analytical validation standpoint uh, through implementing your QMS. You can uh, have ongoing data analysis plans. You can often modify your intended use. You don't necessarily have to be uh, stuck to that intended use statement, and you, know, you can make changes to the the software as well. Just referencing your last point, that post market data is a great opportunity to enable new elements of the software. Right, so you know, don't get overwhelmed. Most of it will be talked about and decided sort of at that pre sub meeting. You just want to be able to have a good strategy going into the the FDA or any regulatory agency see with how you want to present that data and not going in and asking them for their point of view. So work really hard to develop your own point of view. Absolutely. And, and folks, you want a team of experts in your corner, then it's pretty easy. You can go to ProximaCRO.com. You can re- request more information. You, they even have a, a nifty form on their website to submit your RFP. Uh, so a few questions and I'm, I'm sure somebody, Kevin or somebody from his team will be reaching out to you to learn more about how they might be able to help. But definitely go check that out. This is what Proxima does for a living and and they are experts. So I encourage you to, to do that. Folks, I want to thank you so much for, well, I want to thank Kevin Coker, again, founder and CEO of Proxima Clinical Research for being my guest today. So thanks, Kevin. 
Thanks, John. Appreciate the time and the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this uh, episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. If this is your first time, welcome. There's something like 130 more episodes to catch up on and you get a chance to uh, dive into the archives a little bit. You can listen to some conversations that I had with uh, Isabella Schmidt from Proxima Clinical Research on different regulatory related topics, as well as many, many others to, to consume. So go check that out. And if you've been a listener for a long time at the Global Medical Device Podcast, thank you so much. Continue uh, to do so. You were the number one podcast in the medical device industry. So that's because of all of you. So I, I appreciate you being loyal listeners and, and sharing this with your friends and colleagues all around the globe. So thank you for doing that. Again, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help you uh, with your quality management system needs, whether that be dealing with clinical evaluation, where to document it, how to document, how to maintain it putting together technical files, uh, constructing design history files and all the design control and risk management activities, helping you with post-market surveillance and, and all the QMS procedures, uh, go to www.greenlight.guru and reach out. We'd be happy to connect and help you with that. Again, this is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.